0: You're tuned into Going Long with Bruce Murray. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce Murray. Welcome to my podcast, Going Long with Bruce Murray, where every week we spend time with either folks that participate in the world of sports or folks who just have a love for the world of sports, and they share that love with us. This week, I get a chance to chat with a very old friend, somebody that I didn't know in college but went to my alma mater and transferred out just before I got there. But through mutual friends, we became very friendly after I graduated. He's the actor D.B. Sweeney. Now, when I met D.B. Sweeney, his name was Danny. He had not yet gone to Hollywood to pursue that career that made him very famous in the 80s and into the 90s. And even now, still working very effectively, but you'll hear some of the challenges he has uh, with where he lives and how it's become difficult for him. But there's no need to explain his love of sports because he has starred in a movie where he plays a role of a sportsman in almost every endeavor. He starts out as a hockey player in The Cutting Edge, which is really what put him on the map, where he got injured and then became an Olympic figure skater. He was in a basketball movie called Heaven is a Playground. He started out as Shoeless Joe Jackson in Eight Men Out. He's now in a movie about an ex-prize fighter. So once he does tennis, golf, and maybe a football movie, he's covered the entire playground of sports. And having played with him at different levels of sports, be it basketball and or softball, I know he has a passion for playing the games himself. As a matter of fact, you'll hear him pursuing that passion, going over to Australia to become a professional baseball player. And he will also share a great story about a softball team that we put together in the 80s that pursued a championship and how it tied into his character in Eight Men Out when he played Shoeless Joe Jackson. Uh, a great career and a very good friend. Here now my conversation with D.B. All right, Let's just start the conversation with a little history. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm just going to, just for once, I'm going to say Danny, even though your name is D.B., because I met you as Danny. People are going to hear this and realize we met 35 years ago. You meet somebody 35 years ago, it means you're both old. That's that's the real history, uh, th- that's the truth. But we met playing softball. Now you you went to Tulane and transferred before I got there. We had a lot of mutual friends in com- in in common, and then we met on a softball field in the eighties. And you were Danny Sweeney, and now look at you now.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know I started out in theater, as you know, and uh, doing plays in New York. And growing up, I was always Danny Sweeney, and uh, and then when I joined the Screen Actors Guild, they already had a guy, Danny Sweeney, so it was like. What was I going to do? They had a Daniel Sweeney. They had a Dan
0: Sweeney. And I, so I thought DB was the best compromise. So we, we don't have a ton of time. I want to get through all of it. And I know you're doing a new movie, which I want to talk to you about. But my recollection is you were and, and I never forgot this. You were in the commercial for the army and your dad owns like a hardware store or something like that. And, and you said, I want to be in the army. And he goes, you're going to be a soldier, be a good one. And I still choke up about it today. And uh, is that like? I mean, was that an audition type situation? How'd you get that job? I was uh,
1: I was doing my first job in show business was in the Kane Mutiny Court Martial on Broadway, which was awesome. I had one one line in it, and uh, during the run of that show, I got a, a a commercial agent who said, "Hey, go to this audition." It was one of the first auditions I ever had, and uh, the guy who played my dad was Bruce Kirby, who was the late great Bruno Kirby's dad. Wow! It was just one of those magic things, and they they put the commercial on right before the kickoff of the Super Bowl in 1984, and my career just exploded. Like, uh, uh, Steven Spielberg called this little agent I had and said, and flew me out to California and gave me an
0: audition, and it was a crazy thing. I had no idea that commercials had that kind of impact. So, and and it seems like that was the natural transition into the first real big movie that I remember you doing, which was Gardens of Stone, and I'm thinking, he's working with James Khan, for God's sakes. I mean, what the hell is going on here? He's a Tulane guy goes to NYU and now he's working with James Conn. I mean, you know, you're surrounded by, I knew your brother very well, obviously all the guys that we were playing softball with. And here you are all of a sudden a big screen star. What was it like getting that role? It was
1: crazy. I mean, I, when I auditioned for that part, I was living in a really crappy apartment at 38th street, ninth Avenue, fifth floor walk up the water hardly ever worked. We had a guy murdered in our, in our lobby. We didn't even have a lobby. It was a stairwell. Yeah, it, a lobby. Uh, so, so when I go to do that movie, it's in, we're filming in Washington, D.C., and I got a, a call back to go to fly to Washington, D.C., and, and the agent said, this is big time. They're going to send a car for you. And I said, what do you mean? I'll just get a cab. I go to the airport. What are you talking about? And they said nobody sent a car. So they sent a stretch limousine to this stupid little 38th. I mean, if you remember, 38th and 9th was like the epicenter of the crappy Hell's Kitchen. Oh, I remember. And, so all these scales were out trying to figure out who was getting in the limo. And it just I wish I had an iPhone at that time because it was such a funny scene. So I fly down there, I get the job. And now, you know, I, like you say, I'm working with James Kahn and James Earl Jones. And it was really a, like a, a zero to 60
0: moment in my life. So have you come to embrace the Hollywood lifestyle, the limousines and the swag bags and the parties and all that stuff? I'm never one to walk away from swag,
1: although I think it's really <laughs> yeah. corrupt and stupid. But I do uh, partake of it. I remember I got a BlackBerry once. I was like, how much do I pay for this This is like 400 bucks. Right. And they were like, no, that's for you. And so, uh, you know, I I definitely have partaken of that. But, you know, I've never really gone with a big footprint. You know, like I kind of like sneaking around. I mean, I have a good niche where sometimes people recognize me, sometimes they don't. So I get to, you know, hang out in a bar and, and maybe just
0: be one of the people in the bar sometimes and other times not. But but it really is true. I mean, you, you did that movie, and your career really did explode. I mean, this is the time we were all playing softball together. You go do Eight Men Out. And I want to tie that to one of our softball seasons, if you're willing to tell that story. <laughs> I'm not sure that you are. There's a photo associated with it, but we'll get to that later. Uh, but, but And then you do Lonesome Dove. I mean, you, it really did explode early. And I wonder what it's like going from job to job and then the pressure that comes with trying to keep up that pace, and whether there was any disappointment when things did slow down.
1: Well, you know, I wasn't really disappointed. I mean, I, I did, there is a sense of, you know, like I had like five or six or seven great scripts in a row, and, and they were all, you know, cutting edge was a big hit. And so after I did uh, Fire in the Sky, I got a chance to go play professional baseball in Australia, and I just went. And the, the, the stupidity of, and it was $75 on a plane ticket to go play baseball in Australia. At the time, I was in more demand in Hollywood than ever in my life. And I told my agent at the time, I'm not going to say her name because she did something very bad in the wake of this. Um, But I told her, I'm going to Australia to play baseball. She was like, you're crazy. I'm going to get you so much money for your next movie. And I said, yeah, but I always wanted to play baseball and I'm going. So I go over there, have the time of my life. What I don't realize is that while I'm gone, she's telling everybody in Hollywood that I'm in Australia in rehab. So I come back and I have an audition and the guy's like looking at me like, that was when there was more of a stigma to rehab, you know the mid nineties. And uh, this guy's looking at me like, how you doing? You know, you work in the program. And I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, well, everybody knows you were in rehab in Australia. I I said, you think I quit drinking? It's the only thing I'm good at. I'll never (laughs) quit drinking. And and I just found out that for four months, so I don't know what damage was done by that where people thought, who knows? You know, you think maybe I'm a heroin act or something. So I just thought it was a real tell about Hollywood they didn't realize how cool it was that a guy would put his whole thing on pause to go chase his dream, you know, instead of taking the money. I don't know, but that's, you know, what can you say about Hollywood that hasn't been said? So, so I didn't, I didn't
0: even know that to be oh, honest. Okay. With you. I had no idea. This is, I know you did Memphis bell. When, when, at what point, what was the last movie you did before you went to Australia? I, I didn't, I remember you going to Australia, but I had no idea. That's what happened on your return. Yeah. Yeah. It was fire in the
1: sky and I was filming. Okay. Um, so what happened was, um, I actually I when I got asked to go to Australia, I was doing a movie called Hear No Evil in Portland, Oregon. And when I did Eight Men Out, I spent the summer with the Kenosha twins in the Midwest League because you know, I wanted to really work on hitting lefty and get really good at it because nobody had ever been a good baseball player in a movie up till then. Obviously, I didn't know Costner was killing it and Bull Durham at the same time and he would just absolutely knock that out of the park. But uh um so I'm I'm trying to soak up as much baseball as I can and, and I knew some big leaguers in the late 80s and you know, uh, but I felt like 1919 pro baseball players were something like players in the Midwest League, you know, a ball players in terms of amenities, in terms of, you know, like there's no trainers or anything like that. You know, so I wanted to get that soaked that up as much as I could. So when, when you cut to 1994, I'm shooting this movie uh, here, no evil with Marley Matlin yeah. in, um, in Portland and the triple A team for the Minnesota Twins at that time was the Portland Beavers. So my roommate, Terry Jorgensen, and four other guys from the Kenosha Twins had graduated to the Beavers. So I go down to see a game and they're like, hey, dude, you got to come, you know, take BP with us. And, you know, BP was, I was always hitting lefty. I was always the Hollywood, insert your insult after Hollywood, um, every time I took BP. So this day they were like, come take BP. So I came back the next day and I was with Mary Stewart Masterson, who's my co-star from the Gar- uh, Gardens of Stone, right. was also filming a movie there. So I have a witness to this. But anyway, I I was never like a power hitter. But so I take BP and I hit five out of the first 10 pitches onto the street out of uh, Memorial Stadium in Portland, which is a big park in the Pacific Coast League. And the pitching coach for the Portland Beavers said, what are you doing after you finish this movie? I I I got a team in Australia. I need a center fielder. And I was like, I'm in. And so that was as far as
0: it went. It was, you know. So I have to say this. And you're about 30 at this time, right? I mean, yeah, 30, 31 years old. So so here here's what I've always appreciated, and again I know this from firsthand experience. But for somebody that loves sports movies, and by the way, I consider myself a good friend because when you were in a movie first weekend, I it was here. No evil. I was in the theater. I saw Fire in the Sky. By the way, as one of the first dates with my current wife, who you met in Chicago. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. so appreciative because some of these movies I made, we only sold one ticket, and I knew it was you because <laughs> that was
1: it. Had to track it down.
0: But but I, I love sports movies, but I'm always bothered by the stars of the movies who clearly have never played the game of the actors there po- of, of the people they're portraying. And I knew you from playing softball. You were one of the best guys on our softball team. There was Tom Cohn. There were a couple of other good ones. Pete Rattel was great. Um, I was one of the slappies who was like, Oh, we need a to catcher today, a first baseman. I'll just move around. I oh, no, you're selling yourself short, but, but no, you, you were great. And, um, and then, then you did cutting edge. And I remember you didn't know how to skate. So didn't you go train with the Rangers?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I uh, actually you all appreciate this because it took place right near your hometown. So I was good friends with Ron Greshner before this and uh, I got the job uh, cutting edge and they said, you know, we're gonna give you three months to learn how to skate. They rented a rink for Moira Kelly and I called Sky Rink which was Ninth Avenue and 50th Street. I think it's not there anymore but it was like on the sixth floor of a building. It was crazy New York thing where there'll be a rink, a high rise rink. And uh, so we went there every day and. During that time, I said, Ron, I'm not going to get good enough, fast enough to do this movie. What can I do? He said, well, you're on the Rangers old old timers team now. They didn't call it alumni yet. He said, you're on the team. And I said, what do you mean? He said, we got a game against the Islanders old timers um, next week in Long Beach, which is, I think, right near Hewlett. Right. I mean, it's not right. So the Islanders had their practice rink. So we go go to this game. I haven't I don't even know what a hockey warm up is. I mean, I'd seen a million games, but I never got there early enough to see what they do. And they give me a, a jersey number 42. And I go out there and I got my cage on. I'm the only guy with a cage. I can barely skate. I've been skating for one month. So I'm up against the uh, the glass during the warmup. And I hear these two Islander fans up against the glass looking at the program. And I hear the guy go, who the heck is number 42? And the other guy goes, I don't know, but he must have had a lot of injuries. And I was, <laughs> and I was like, all right, this is going to be an adventure. So then I, Pierre LaRouche is playing in the game, and uh, Pete Stemkowski and Ron Gresher and all these great old Rangers. So Pierre LaRouche, who's a great character, goes to me. He said, DB, no matter what you do, you go to the net, keep your stick on the ice. And I was like, all right, that sounds like good advice. I'll do it. So on my first shift, I, like, I plod over to the net with my stick on the ice. The puck goes off my stick into the net. I scored a goal. I was like, I can't even oh. believe this. And then later on in the game, another one goes off my stick into the net. And it was Pierre LaRouche. Pierre had bet everybody on the Rangers a hundred bucks that he could score off my stick in the game. And
0: so I thought I did something, but <laughs> yeah. Pierre made like a thousand bucks. or you know, it was great. Well, you'll be happy to know that uh, Dave Maloney, one of the great New York Rangers is yeah. actually lives down the block from me. I've had him as part of this podcast series already and, and this podcast. So, you know, DB is, cause we didn't really talk about it before is, 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 about people who either participated in sports or do things outside of the world of sports, but have a love of sports. And you've always had that. And you've done so many sports movies. I mean, I remember you did Heaven, what was it? Heaven is a Playground, Heaven's Playground. What was the name of the movie? Playground, basketball movie, yeah. Yeah, and and we played intramural basketball together. So I knew you could play that as well. But were you always in pursuit of those kind of things because you thought you were a good fit for them? Or did people find, oh, he's an athlete that can act. Let's go get him in our movie.
1: I think there's some of that, like, like the cutting edge, they had scouted me out. They knew I was athletic. They didn't think I was going to learn, be able to learn how to skate as well as I ended up doing, but that was definitely part of their scouting report. Um, heaven is a playground. I love Chicago so much. I wanted to work here. And originally that was supposed to be Michael Jordan in that movie. Yeah. and Bo Kimball. I remember. So, so Michael dropped out and, you know, and you know, I, that was probably a right move for Michael because it was kind of, his star was just exploding. He was becoming so much bigger than sports at that time. And this was a little movie, but, you know, it was still, it was a really fun experience. We shot that movie in Cabrini Green, which is one of the worst ghettos in America that thankfully is no longer there. It's gone,
0: yeah. I used to live near it.
1: Yeah. And one night they shot out our lights. Like we had, uh, you know, lighting for the basketball scenes at night and they shot our lights out. It turned out we hadn't bribed one of the gangs enough because we had a ton (laughs) of gang members in the movie. And they used to have like two, one guy from each gang who would have like, instead of like a coat check, they had a gun check. So if you wanted to film in the movie and be in the basketball game that night, you had to check your piece with this dude. And they had a guy from the one gang, I don't want to say any gang names in case somebody gets mad at me, but the, the famous gang of the yeah. one, the famous gang of the other, they each had their own gun check guy. And it was just a funny
0: thing. You know, I wish they had, had a behind-the-scenes thing of that. So so you thought this was your best career move at the time, spending time in Cabrini Green with the gangs. That that was that was your best, that, that was the best thing you could think of to do at the moment. The, you know, there's a real pattern through my. Thankfully,
1: thirty-five year career where I really don't put a lot of thought into stuff. I'm very impulsive, and sometimes it works
0: out great, and more often than not, it doesn't. Have you ever done? And I do want to get to Eight Men Out, by the way, because I'm not going to let you off the hook about that one. Uh, are you willing to tell the story?
1: Well, if you set it up, and so I'm sure that we're talking about the same one, then yes.
0: Yeah. Okay. That that's fine. Um, has there? I've always wondered this because when you do a movie. As an actor, you're obligated to then go out and pitch it. You do the late night talk show circuit, Conan and Letterman and blah, blah, blah. And you've got to be really appreciative of the project. And I know I've done things that when I'm done, I go, yeah, that was awful. Like, have, have you? do you look back and go, either I shouldn't have done that, or the second you were done, even though you had to go out and play the game, that you were like, yeah, I know this is not going to be any good.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I've been guilty of that. I've probably worked too often, especially back in that time when I was really, you know, hot. Um, I did a bunch of movies that I shouldn't have done. I did one movie called Leather Jackets because I thought it was just a funny idea and Bridget Fonda was really cool, but the director was a disaster. And I've I've done 12 movies with first-time directors, I think is the count now, including the director of Haymaker, Nick Sasso. And he's been the exception to this rule. Most people, you can't direct a movie your first time out. You're gonna wreck it one way or the other. So you want to catch somebody on their second movie or their third or beyond. And um, so I did a lot of these first director movies because my logic was, how are you going to get on the ground floor with the next Quentin Tarantino if you're not on the ground floor? So, but the reality is, it's really hard to direct a movie and most people fail. Have you ever thought about it? Well, I directed Two Tickets to Paradise and uh, I only directed it because I asked two guys that directed uh, Ron Shelton, who directed Bull Durham. And he was awesome. He said, I can't direct your $2 million movie because then they'll say in Hollywood, I can't direct a big studio movie anymore. And <laughs> that was a really honest, candid answer. Yeah. And then I asked uh, Ed Harris, one of my dear friends and one of the guy that I admire the most in the acting side. Yeah, and I love him. He, he had just finished doing Pollock. And uh, he said, I can't do it, but I'll be in your movie, which I thought was a great compliment. So I directed it not to prove that I was like some great director, but just because that was the only way to get it done. And I thought anybody else that I got would have wrecked it more than me. So, so, so what did you learn about it? And why didn't you do it again? I will do it again. And I directed a short film with Sean Austin, which is out right now called Two Dumb Mix, which has won 65 Film Festival Awards. And uh, it's a short film. And, and, and so I, I had a great experience with that. I think the heart, being an actor and being a director is two very different mindsets. And the analogy that I like to think of is like, the actors are like the children and the director is the mom and the producer is the dad. And there's just very different mindsets. Like the producer has to be the disciplinarian. The director has to be like, oh, you children are wonderful. I love everything you do. Go run around. Yeah, we'll go paint on the walls. Do what you want. And as an actor, you kind of have to be in that, you know, non-responsible mentality a little bit. And I think that's why so many actors get in trouble in their personal lives, because there is no strictures on you in, in the right way, you know, when you're working. But uh, so that's why I think it's a little too schizophrenic to be the child and the mom and the child and the dad or whatever the case may be to torture the an- analogy beyond use. But, you know, I, I feel like you, you got to directing is a very specific mindset where you have to have a singular focus. And I will do it again, but I don't think I'll direct myself again.
0: Yeah. And, and I want to get to the life of a Hollywood star. And I want to talk about the new movie you're in, because, again, it's a sports movie. You, you're in a movie about a, a former prize fighter, But. I don't want to bury the lead with what I did say we were going to get to. You're in a great baseball movie. I think it's one of the great baseball movies, Eight Men Out. Now, this is when we were all together on a somewhat regular basis. And we were part of a softball team called the Skins, which, by the way, I think had the worst uniforms in the history of softball. Think late 70s Pirates, but they were orange. I mean, the hats were bad, the, the shirt, it was awful. It was as it's bad the, as you get. The
1: Astros looked like the Yankees.
0: Yeah, it, it was as bad a uniform as you can get. And you played Shoeless Joe Jackson. Now, of course, Eight Men Out is about the White Sox, who ultimately were accused of throwing the World Series. To this day, it's kept Shoeless Joe Jackson out of the Hall of Fame. And we made it to, if I'm not, was it the semifinals or the championship game? I, I think it was a chance. We were undefeated is all I know. Nobody yeah. had beat it all year. Right. And we lost We lost that last game of the season, I believe, one nothing, if I'm not mistaken. It's 30-some-odd it's, it's years ago, so I'm, I'm piecing together all the details, although many of us have relived it. And listen, again, I say this with great respect. You were, I believe, one of, if not the best player on the team. You could play every position. I get it. But in that game, I'll let you explain it. And then you've got to explain the photo that was subsequently taken. So, yeah. <laughs>
1: I hope you don't have
0: the photo. Oh, I, I haven't.
1: Uh, <laughs> so, uh, well, it, yeah, I did play a lot of different positions. But at that time, it, even though I was only 27 or so, or we were all about the same age. My eyes were starting to go. And I was
0: really preferring infield. Real, this and, You're going to go to this? My eyes were starting to go at 27? I had never heard this before. Go ahead. So,
1: <laughs> so The lights, I mean, the field was on 11th Avenue, wherever the heck it was. Out in the outfield. I know exactly
0: where it was. It was 56th street and 11th Avenue yeah. on, and it was all bottle caps and rocks right. and all that stuff.
1: And, and that's the other side of it. Why I was not comfortable playing the outfield on this field because it was all rutted and everything. And you know that I had had a serious knee injury and had already had two surgeries uh-huh. at that point. So I was much more comfortable in the infield. All of these are all my excuses. With that <laughs> said, um, th- I think there was a guy in second <laughs> base and uh, I'm playing left center or center or whatever it is. And yeah a fairly routine fly ball. And I, I, I booted it. And uh, the guy scored, I think he scored the only run and that was the game. And I was, I was disappointed. I was mad. I was, I should have stuck to my guns and st- played second base or something, you know, because I, I, I lost the ball and and then it was on me. So, you know, anybody who's played outfield knows it happens and it's just terrible when it happens in a key moment like that. So I felt like I had let everybody down and, but everybody was kind of in a great mood that we'd had a great season and everything. And I, and, and, I, I didn't want to take a picture to commemorate the moment where we just lost the biggest game of the year. And anyway, I, I guess I misread the moment because I thought we were going to be like, you know, in the NHL where they never pick up the uh, the conference championship trophy. Yeah, it was that picture. I thought, you know, but, but I, you know, anyway, so I'm memorialized forever. It's kind of like a sour sport. And I, you know, I apologize to everybody on the team, Billy Rodriguez, John McHugh. Bob Margulies. Margulies. But,
0: but you didn't uh, share the detail. The, the photo is an entire team photo of the skins, all of us with our thumbs up, celebrating a great season. And there's one guy center stage in the photo with his thumb down. And I, that would be D.B. Sweeney. It's a big regret for me. And uh, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I, like I said, I'm sorry to
1: everybody that that picture turned out like that and that I did that. I, did, I didn't mean any reflection on the team or the season. It
0: just was a... It, it does make for a good memory. We all kid about it all the time. But, but I thought it was funny because it did come on the heels of eight men out. And of course, all the jokes that went with it, you know, was, you know, was he paid off by the other team? I don't remember who he lost to, but uh, listen, that's one of those things that, that make childhood. So I got that out of the way. Um, the, the Hollywood lifestyle. So you go out to California and I don't really remember you weren't, weren't you? Like, didn't you were in New York for a little while in Chelsea. You went back out to California. Where did you decide to live?
1: Yeah, I, when I finally had a little bit of money, I bought this great apartment on Christopher Street between yeah, that I remember. 6th right. and 7th. And that was awesome. And that was really the when I, I was getting flown out to L.A. And it was very interesting because I thought, well, I'm doing this well out of New York. I wonder if I go to L.A. And then when you go to L.A., something changes. Like there's a reason why there's so many Australian actors and English actors that kill it in Hollywood for a while, because the agents are able to say, oh, he's only here for three days. You better have a meeting with him. And so all of a sudden now you live in there, and I was living in Malibu for a while and then Santa Monica. And you, you know, you bump into somebody at Starbucks and maybe you haven't, you know, shaved yet or something, and you look a little banged up. And everybody out there is in show business. So all of a sudden you're not that special anymore. So I think it, it wasn't great for me. You know, I didn't a lot of the, everybody that lives in LA is out there trying to be in show business, or there's the children of people who are in show business. And I just don't find it to be very diverse in the sense, not racially and all that. I just mean in the sense of you know, when you're in New York, there's guys on Wall Street who never watch a movie. Or when I'm in Chicago, you know, I meet guys that are like plumbing contractors who have a ton of money and they're just they could care
0: less. And I think that's much healthier. Well, and and that's what I was going to ask you, because, you know, I, I, I read about Cameron Diaz when she decided to retire from from acting. And she said, you know, I can I can carry my own bag from the cab to the airport. And when you become a star and you were a star, I mean, there comes this sense of entitlement. I mean, even in the world that I work in, we travel to remotes and your producers are like, what do you need? Can I get you this? They make your hotel reservations. And it's not on that level, believe me. But I always wonder, how do you resist that? Or, you know, did did you fall into that trap at all? You know, I I really didn't.
1: I mean, honestly, I, you know, anytime a pretty girl recognized me, I was like, thank you, cutting edge. You know, I mean, I, but I never (laughs) like went up to people saying, do you know who I am or anything? You know, and it's handy. Like I, I must've been 10 times where during that era where I just buy a coach ticket on the airplane and the flight attendant puts me right up front, you know, in the first seat. And, you know, it's nice. It's a nice little perk. But uh, no, I never, I don't think I ever in my life ever tried to leverage it or something like that. And you know, I I was always glad when whatever profile I had got me considered for another part, because I really like acting, you know, I mean, I I love the process of it, the life of it, you know, eh, but the process of getting on the set and trying to film it and trying to solve the problem of the scene or trying to figure out how to make the story work. I I
0: love it. I, 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 you know, I could never see retiring. Yeah. Because it's funny because when, you know, somebody before they become that guy that's on the screen and, you know, I knew you right when you were becoming that guy on the screen, you know, it changes people, you know, that, and, you know, you had that, that, that core group of friends who I know you still, you know, keep close. Some guys move on to their Hollywood life. I mean, was it hard to kind of balance, you know, all the work, the busyness, and then keeping that life that you knew previous, which I, I really think you, look again, I, I knew the guy that was taking the cab up to 56th street. So yeah. how hard was it to like, you know, maintain what you had before? Well, I
1: mean, uh, it wasn't, it's just hard
0: in terms of time. Like, you know, like, you know,
1: there's like, I don't think that softball team, I think we played one more year after that or whatever, but then it just wasn't time to, to be there. I'd be off doing some job maybe or something and, know, and you can't always stay in touch with everybody as much as you would like. But I feel like I'm the same Jagoff that I was 30 years ago. You know, I mean, I don't think whatever was good about me or bad about me then is I'm the same guy. And I agree. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I don't think you know, you you make a choice. I mean, I know, I do know a lot of people in Hollywood who they catch that thing. I can know one person who won an Oscar and all of a sudden, they didn't call me back. And I was like, "Ah, that's interesting. And I thought it was kind of stupid. It was just a reflection on them. But it it does go with the territory, you know, but like, you know, put it this way, I'm friends with Keeper Sutherland. He's a massively famous guy. And we used to play hockey together. And so I don't expect him like when I text him, I don't expect him to like fire back and go into a five minute text war with me. You know, I, I know he's got, he's probably right in the middle of something, you know, and so I, I don't, I know some people maybe get miffed if you don't reach back. And we're in this world now where it's like instant, uh, you can get access to almost anybody instantly. And you can't say I didn't have cell service or anything. So it is a little bit of a challenge, but I, you know, I feel like I've done a good job, you know, managing it as best I can. And, and uh, I'm really blessed. I have a ton of really good friends and, you know, i got healthy teenage kids. And so I'm counting my blessings.
0: You know, it's funny you say that because I think to myself, you know, and, and we would communicate very infrequently. You came to Chicago when I was living there, we get together. And then, you know, something happens and, you know, you'll shoot a text. And if I ever text you and I don't hear back of me, I'm like, Oh, is he too big for me now? Like what happened? Uh, and you're right that that's isn't that the world we live in, like you have this expectation that everybody's just looking at their phone and not doing anything at that moment and should be getting back to you as if they don't have a job or they have something else that they're actually involved in.
1: Yeah. And, and for you know, you're you're in a very similar situation where, you know, a thousand people that are on TV weekly, you know, and, and, and on radio and so forth. And so I might get a text and then, I, oh, it's like, oh, that's so and so. I got to hit them back. But then seven other texts come in. Right that thing's buried on the bottom and I, it might be a week before I get down to the bottom of the mat. Not that I'm so important or anything, you know, it's just, it's just the, the nature of it, you know? And, yeah. and uh, um, so it is, it is kind of interesting. And, and I've been trying to do this thing lately. I saw this movie, the social dilemma. I don't know if you watched it yet, but it's I, like, I saw know, it. Yeah, I incredible. did. And since I watched that movie, I'm really trying to not pick up my phone for an hour into the day. And then I try to put it down an hour before I go to bed because you know, it starts to dominate your life. And that that access to guy, like I'm, I got guys I play hockey with, I got guys I golf with, they're great guys. But there's like chains of eleven people that you can get drawn into a 20 minute time waster, and you know, and it's so I'm trying to create boundaries for myself, but it's very hard.
0: Yeah. See, see, you and I are just the opposite. Once I saw that, I figured, all right, I'm screwed. Now I just spend (laughs) my time putting my social security number online. I if they got all my information, they might as well just ruin me with it because it's over at this point. But you know, I, I, I forgot to ask you this earlier, when, when we were talking about, you know, the, the meteoric rise of your career, and then what happened when you went to Australia, I, I work in, a, I'm sure every business is like this, people, there's office politics, they go, why did he get that job? Why this? You know, I work in a business, a guy gets a job, and you're like, he's no better than I am, why? Were, were you jealous of roles that you may have wanted that some other guy got that you thought you were better than, or he's a slap? I mean, what, what's that moment like when you don't get the job that you wanted?
1: Well, I'll give you an example. I mentioned Ron Shelton earlier, and he—I he's a great director. And so when I was doing Eight Men Out during my preparation for, um, uh, you know, to, to play Shula Show Jackson, I'm in Kenosha, and somebody in Hollywood had heard, hey, there's this guy, D.B. Sweeney, who's a good baseball player. He's so into it. He's doing this. And they offered me the role of Nuke Lelouch. and And I thought that was a great script. And you know but i thought 8 man out i was already committed to 8 man out so i didn't want to be the guy who drops out of the other movie we were filming at exactly the same time they came out like, at the same time didn't they yeah they came they old Durham came out a little earlier the yeah. S- studio they were both orion pictures so anyway i think in a way it was better for them that tim robbins did it like i thought you know i i was sort of like the young leading man like i could have been kevin costner's little brother or something and tim robbins was the goofy guy and I right. thought when the goofy guy got the girl. It's what made all the comedy work. So I think in a way, the movie was better for me not to be in it. Um, you know, there's been other examples. Oh, to stay with that. I mean, when White Men Can't Jump was casting, I really wanted to be in White Men Can't Jump because I knew Wesley Snipes and I thought that was a great script and I was going to be phenomenal. And Ron Shelton told my agent that I don't know if I want to go to DB, he turned me down last time. And it was like, I thought that was really stupid. But I, I would have made that movie better because I thought Woody Harrelson, who's a great actor, what he got wrong in that movie was he made his character too cool. The whole funniness of it and the whole hustle of it was I wanted the, the, movie, the audience to meet me dressed like John Stockton with a short haircut and the two short shorts. I wanted to be sitting on the Venice playground drinking a glass of milk. And then you pull that guy into the game and then it's funny and a surprise. And the hustle is there's no way this guy can play. Whereas right. Woody Harrelson had the, the, you know, the board shorts and he's a cool guy. So anyway, there's times when you feel like you could have done better. But, you know, Woody's a great actor.
0: Yeah, but but in fairness, and I don't remember where Woody Harrelson was in his career when that movie came out, you know, you, you lose a role to a guy like that who's gone on to win an Academy Award. You go, I can live with that. But what about what about somebody who doesn't have that kind of career that you may wanted that role and some slappy gets it? And you're like, well, how'd that work out? Like, who? Like, Why?
1: Yeah, that's happened. I I hate to say, with increasing frequency, as you get older, the people that come up through the casting infrastructure and the producers and everything, they don't necessarily know Lonesome Dove and Eight Men Out and all these other yeah. movies, and and so their attention span is basically they're going off people they've seen on TV in the last year and a half. So I haven't been as active the last you know five, seven, ten years as I was the twenty years before it. So you know it's it's frustrating at this point. Everything, all auditions are on. Uh, you know, you have to tape yourself, and so. it's very frustrating for me to have to prove I can act on an iPhone to get a part. So there's not one particular one that jumps into mind right now, but it does happen with increasing frequency. But I know that the worm will turn like somebody's going to throw me in some high profile show and then guys will be bitching about me getting the part.
0: So I I never understood why actors or actresses even announced their retirement. I mean, you can not work for 10 years and then take a job. So but it does make me wonder, like, do you ever get to the point where you go, you know, I, I don't even know if I want to do this anymore. You've never gotten there. No, I mean, there's definitely there's been a lot of movies I I, I don't do because, you know,
1: either the 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 person who wrote it, the script is either bad or the person who wrote it is so disorganized and they're trying to direct it or the money's not right or it's in Albuquerque or any number of reasons. But I remember early in my career, I read uh, Michael Caine uh, had a quote where he said, I don't need to read the script. I just need to know how much you're paying me and where is it filming? And I understand (laughs) that, like, I'm not in the position Michael Caine is. But for me, after I did Fire in the Sky and had to be filmed outside at night, naked in the rain, the first thing I look for in a script is, are there any night scenes with rain? Because that is the worst <laughs> week of your life. So, um, so you know, I, I mean, yeah, you get a little, I just, like I said earlier, I love acting. and I don't see myself giving up on
0: it, but, you know, you definitely get a little pickier about what situations you're going to insert yourself into. See, see, I appreciate that, though, because, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis is that guy who works every five years, and it's got to be the perfect role. And two things I remember, Robert De Niro, who has done so many bad movies in addition to good ones, and when he was asked about it, he goes, I I just like to work, you know, if give give me a script. And I once interviewed Samuel L. Jackson when Snakes on a Plane came out. And I said, so tell me, when you got the script of Snakes on a Plane, what drove you to it? And he goes, script. I didn't read a script. I saw the title Snakes on a Plane, and they said, we're going to pay you. And he goes. I'm in. So <laughs> I, I, you know, too often we over, you know, the, the art and all that. I mean, I, I like the guys like you say, look, I like working. If, if somebody gives me a job, I'm, I'm willing to take it. It doesn't have to be this grand gesture. If that, if that makes sense to you. Yeah. hundred
1: percent. Like, and, and sometimes you have the greatest life experiences like um, like two years ago, I went to South Africa to work on a TV show called ice. And it was, uh, nobody ever saw it. It was on direct TV. It was like a direct TV show. They don't even make shows anymore. And, but I was opposite Ray Winston, who's one of my favorite actors. I, I'm sure you've seen Sexy Beast. Yeah. And, uh, he was in The Departed. And I mean, he's a legend. Yeah. And so I got to work with him. First, we were in Vancouver for a month and a half. And then we were in South Africa for a couple months. First of all, I get paid to go to South Africa. So I, you know, I get to go on a safari. And, you know, and I'm in Vancouver with Ray Winston drinking Guinness and watching West Ham against Man United. And it's just the yeah. greatest thing in the world. And he and I became really close friends. In South Africa. And it's like, I don't care that nobody ever saw ice. Our scenes together are really good. My character was great, but I have memories of eating sushi with Ray Winston in Camps Bay, South Africa that, you know, that was one of the greatest things of my career.
0: Yeah. Th- those experiences are great. And, and I want to talk about your new movie in a second, but anybody who's listened to this podcast knows I shared this story. Uh, I've seen every one of your movies. I doubt you've seen mine. Maybe you have actually. So I was the radio guy in A Bad Lieutenant. This is before I, I, no, this is after you had left. I, I did the radio of The Bad Lieutenant. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I love that movie. So, well, go back and look at it. I'm actually the second voice in the movie over the opening credits. And every time he's in the squad car, he's listening to me. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, How did that come about? Uh, so my, my college roommate at Tulane was the casting director for the movie. I was doing radio at the time. And he goes, I got a great role for you. And I said, fine. I keep telling people I'm very selective. I'm waiting for my <laughs> next great script. But I always tell people I love getting the residual check. I get a check every quarter. It's like $2.87, $4.12. And that movie's not on anywhere. So well, I'll tell you how much I like that movie. I hired the
1: director of photography, uh, Ken Kelsch, to do my movie, Two Tickets to Paradise.
0: But then I had to fire him because he wasn't into it. <laughs> well, you got to go back and look at it because I'll get uh, another check when you do. But w- yeah. what, what, what's the movie that gives you the biggest check? What, what's the biggest turnover for you? Like when you go to the mailbox and you see, oh. Here's a good one. What what do you get? Well, lately
1: it's been two and a half men
0: because it's syndicated and oh, I
1: did 11 episodes of that. And I can only imagine what John Cryer's checks are because I get nice checks from that. And it's been six years ago. Uh, but over the last 30 years, the cutting edge is just a blue chip. Uh, you know,
0: uh, it's just every year. It's just, you know, it's whatever, several thousand dollars. It's unbelievable, isn't it? You go to the yeah. mailbox and you just get a check from SAG and it's like, and it tells you where they watched it and what it was right. on and I look at it because, you know, I have one and I'm like, oh, it was it was rented on DirecTV. I'm like excited about this little stuff.
1: Well, the (laughs) biggest one I ever had was a movie called Dinosaur, which was an animated movie for Disney. I I remember. And and that was ridiculous. The the checks I got for that were like I got one check that was like a six figure check. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. And that all tapered off. But that was right around the time I was like making a campaign to get in a Pixar movie because I was like, wow, if Dinosaur does this, imagine what Pixar (laughs) does. But the secret was out and every little part in Pixar Got vacuumed up by people that worked at Pixar in in uh, Emeryville, California.
0: So they had their five big star roles and then everybody else was staffed. And th- those become cash cows. All right. So tell me, tell me because we only have a couple minutes left. Tell me about this movie, Haymaker. Um, I've seen the I've seen the trailer for it. I will see it when it comes out. Is it gonna go to both theaters and on to HBO Max or whatever? I don't. I don't even know how it works anymore in Hollywood.
1: Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, I think if it catches a, a wind, it might go on theaters. But I think right now the plan is that it's just streaming. Okay. And, uh, you know, because the, the, you lose money in the theaters and it used to be a loss leader. But now you go right to people are used to streaming right away. So but uh, it, it's a cool little movie. It's um, Nick Sasso wrote and directed it. And uh, he plays the main character who's a sort of an aging MMA fighter, Muay Thai fighter who, who uh, you know, he wants one last shot. He's working as a bouncer. And while he's working as a bouncer in a nightclub, this transgender singer has an overzealous fan, and he kind of beats up the trans the, the fan. And uh and this woman hires him to be his security. So it's just like egger from the Bronx and this very sophisticated transgender singer played by Nomi Ruiz, who, you know, it's like a and it becomes this interesting little love story. Like they become infatuated with each other. And I'm his older brother, and it's uh it's just cool. And the way I got involved was Nick Sasso reached out to me and he sent me a letter saying, i would watched all these movies of yours and I'm just starting out. And it would really mean a lot to me if you would consider doing this because you'd bring a like a, a veteran presence to the locker room or whatever. He didn't say it like that. That's so how I would have said it. But that's kind of what he said. And I was like, you know what? I'll meet with the guy. And I met him and he was just a straight shooter, honest. And I felt like he, was, he had a good chance to succeed. And the movie really uh, delivers that kind of persona that he has. It's an honest movie, it's entertaining, it's surprising, and I'm really proud of it. I thought, you know, uh, I thought Nick did a great job and Nomi's great, and uh, we got a lot of good people. John Ventimiglia's in it, who I had worked with years ago, who oh, was yeah. on Plano's. He's in it for a little bit, and, and it's just really, really a good good movie. I mean, it's
0: it's perfect streaming entri- entry in your queue. Uh, I will tell you, John Ventimiglia, I was once at a celebrity golf tournament with him, um, and I remember meeting him and like being at the barbecue with him and talking, and. I saw him on the guest list and I said, who the hell is John Ventimiglia? Like, he's one of those guys, you don't know the name, you know the face. And of course, he, he played a pretty big role in The Sopranos. And then when I finally came face, I was like, oh, you're John Ventimiglia. And then we kind of hit it off. Great guy, by the way. Yeah, great guy. We worked on a show called C16
1: way back in the in the 90s. And uh, uh, he, he was on there for a bit and we became friends. And then I didn't see him again. It's this weird thing with Hollywood. I didn't see him for like 20 years. And then you see the guy on the set and it's just kind of cool. But. But you and I got to do, we got to figure out a way. You got to put it out there. We got to play golf. Let's do
0: one of these charity events or something. Let's get together. Are we allowed out of the house? I'm not allowed out of the house until, until this vaccine gets to me. I'm not even allowed out of the house, but I, I would love it. T- tell me this before you go. Um, how is it bringing up a family as with this being, you know, your, because, you know, people would say that to me and I'm like, my kids think I'm a moron and they, they don't even think I know anything about football, by the way, they go I'll watch a game with them and I'll, I'll tell them what I think happened. They'll go, well, you're wrong, dad. And I'll be like, okay, you're probably right. What's it like, you know, bringing up kids, you know, whose dad's an actor?
1: Well, that was one of the reasons we got out of uh, LA. You know, we've been living here in the suburbs of Chicago for like seven years now. Uh, Hinsdale, I don't know if you ever got through there when you were here, but yeah. it's uh, just west of the city. And, you know, in LA, my son was playing for the junior Kings playing hockey. And, you know, you go to that rink where the, where the Lakers practice and the, uh, and the, the Kings practice and there's a lot of people around there from show business. And then there's a lot of people around there who are, you know, they want you to sign something or want you, and it's just a weird atmosphere. And I, I just wanted a a little more purity, like going to the ring with my son and tying his skates. And so, you know, we definitely, we moved out of there partly for that reason to shield them from that. Cause I never wanted to be like my dad, the actor, you know, I just wanted to be my dad who's tying my skates or, you know, drive me to hockey. And, and uh, so that, that's been really good. It hasn't been great for, work because you know i don't bump into anybody who might tell me about a project here so it's a trade-off but uh you know my kids have they they were aware of it very young because you know if i go into an airport it's like there'll be 10 people that come up to me about the cutting edge and so they got used to it pretty quick and it was just kind of normal and i just you know i never like i said i never looked for a limo or had a glasses on or anything you know i never played that up so it's been pretty pretty normal I, i guess you'd have to ask them i mean like what their perspective is. I know my son put it in his college essay that it, you know, that it's weird having to share your dad with everybody, which I thought was a interesting way to say it. Yeah. And, um, but I don't think they've been traumatized or anything like that. I think they get that. You know, he got to ride on the Zamboni at the Joe Louis Arena, so you know, there's there's
0: he gets how it's a it's a trade off. Do Do people think that you're friends with everybody you've ever worked? Do they come up and go, ooh, do you stay in touch with Moira Kelly? Because I'm thinking, you know, everybody's got jobs that they've had throughout their lives and. You don't stay in touch with everybody, but I think we look at actors and go, oh, they must be best friends. Do people think that you're friends with everybody you've ever worked with? Yeah, yeah, they do. And I remember when I was uh, I was watching Tonight Show when I was a kid. I was like, everybody's hugging. Everybody
1: in Hollywood is so full of crap. They're all <laughs> hugging like they like each other, but they probably hadn't seen each other since six years before when they worked together. So there is a there's a, like a reality to that. And so you know you stay in touch with a few, but there's people I love that like like Dean Stockwell I mentioned earlier from Gardens of Stone, and and he uh, I think I mentioned him he. Um, he lives in uh, in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. I was filming a movie out there, and I tried to track him down, but I couldn't. He's like unlisted, and you know, so it. it some people don't want to be tracked down, and and also it's just you move on to the next thing, and it's it's sometimes it feels like you're going back. But Maura Kelly came and did a part in Two Tickets of Paradise for me, uh, which was really great of her to do that. And she and I made a deal: we'll never do a sequel to The Cutting Edge without the other person. And so we're like connected forever, and hopefully we'll get a chance to you know to do. Like, I watch Hallmark movies sometimes. It's like, how are Moira Kelly and I not in a Hallmark movie together? I mean, it's just like (laughs) such a no-brainer.
0: You know, I know you got to go in a second. Uh, We always talk about chemistry. That seemed to work, which is why that movie was so successful. I mean, have you had people that you've worked with on screen that you go, yeah, I mean, this is complete acting. I don't get along with this person at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple of guys uh, that I, I, I'll i never mention by name, except Eric Roberts, who, you know. You just, yeah, I know one of, I was about to say, if you won't mention him, Eric Roberts. Yeah, I mean, it's like, he killed that show I mentioned earlier that John Ventimiglia yeah. was on. Single-handedly killed the show. And, you know, we had Morris Chestnut and Angie Harmon and Zach Grenier and Christine Tucci. And the guy who was producing it was Mike Robin, who every show he's done has worked. Nip Tuck, uh, he's got a show on now called All Rise. Like, he's one of the best producers in Hollywood. That was his first show, and it's like, So that one, that stings a little bit. And, you know, whatever. I wish him, I hope he finds peace, but he's crazy and he wrecked that show for 150 people.
0: Um, All right, Uh, tell me about the movie again. Where can we see it? When are we going to see this, Haymaker?
1: Yeah, you just go put Haymaker in your uh, search bar and it will show you links to where you can stream it and and, uh, you can sign up in advance so that it'll remind you when it comes out on January 29th. And uh, it's uh, it's definitely worth your time. You know, I mean, I know I, I don't do this kind of promoting the movie thing every time. I, I, I never try to say bad things about movies, except when they're 25 years old. But, you know, I, I really feel good about this one, and I hope people check it out.
0: All right. We're wrapping things. I want to tell two things. One is, you know, you talked about just the regular guy from Chelsea coming up to play softball. The difference between you and a regular guy is, am I, am I not mistaken in saying that your girlfriend would come to the games and you'd say, Gina's here, and it was Gina Gershon?
1: That, yeah, that was.
0: <laughs> we, went to, we went to college together at NYU. We were together for a long time, six years. Yeah, that's not the normal softball crowd. And while we're finishing up, I get a text from one John McHugh, who says, hey, let me know when I can hear the DB Sweeney podcast, because I told him you were going to be coming on. Well, you know, 20 minutes before we went on,
1: I said, hey, I said, John, can you give me something on Bruce that I don't know, because I know he's going to crush me about something.
0: And he didn't answer the phone. So John McHugh big times us both. Because he's too big, right? He's the guy that three days later you get the text back from. Right. And I'm glad you didn't hear back from him before we did this. But you're invited back. I wish we had more. Listen, you know, I mean, there's a lot of history there. And when you told me that you may be doing a project about Mike Martz at some point, right? I was hoping uh, it it would
1: happen. I mean, the movie was put on hold and we're hoping that it happens. But, uh, you know, the guy, Mark Chardy, who produced uh, Miracle, great guy. He's a guy I play golf with in California, good guy. And. So I I reached out to him. I said, hey, man, I want to play Mike Martz. It was the uh, Kurt Warner story, I guess. Yeah. And I don't really know if they got to it yet or I don't know. But yeah, I hope it happens. I mean, I'd love to do an NFL uh, movie because I'm a huge NFL fan. And and I think, you
0: know, it'd just be fun to be in that world. Yeah, I know. All right. I'm going to let you go. Uh, listen, the next time you have a project, you know, you're welcome on this podcast to promote it. We have so much more. We could talk about it. But it was great catching up with you.
1: Yeah, you too. All the best to your family. and. Uh, And I'm going to reach out to you and we're going to get on the golf course.
0: Hope you enjoyed the conversation I had with DB Sweeney, who again, when I met him was Danny Sweeney, a great athlete in his own right. Um, I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I hope you enjoy what we do every week on this podcast. I'll be back next Thursday with another edition. You can get your podcasts on the SiriusXM app or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you'll be with me next week.
1: Series XM Podcasts.